right. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you guys. Wow, Jeremy, that is very loud and echoey. If you could put a little reverb so I can sound like Moses from the mountain. Um, hey, welcome, everybody. Glad that you guys are here with us. Glad to see some, some new faces, faces we haven't seen in a while. Um, all of you and faces that we see every single week, you guys are precious to us. Thank you. Thank you for coming. Um, glad that you're here. Pastor Gabe just talked about um, all the things that we have going on here, not even all, just a small snapshot. She also prayed over the offering, and I want to just emphasize a couple things. When we prayed, when we were in our other building, and we prayed for the Lord's provision to be able to, number one, show us uh, our new home, and then get us there and give us the give us the resources for a down payment and for and to get all that done. We prayed for that and and through you, many of you and your generosity, he provided incredibly, miraculously. And so we are here enjoying that place. Now though, it kind of felt like that idea of manna from heaven. It was enough to get us the very next step. In my mind, if you remember, I was like, I want to have that much and then I want to have another reserve fund set aside. In my mind, this is what I wanted. And of course, the Lord said, I will give you what you need when you need it. Okay, so here we are now. We're in this wonderful place. We've got all these things, but we still have some of the projects that we had on our heart to do. Putting a cross on top of the steeple is one of them. Changing the, for those of you who know, the Pac-Man sign outside. So we're not known as the Pac-Man church anymore. I want to do that. We want to build a permanent sound booth. We want to build a permanent uh, uh, storage room back there for some of this music equipment. Those things are above and beyond God's provision to get us here. But I know that he'll provide for those things too. But he provides through his people. And so I just want to emphasize just anybody out there who has on their heart, I want to help with a project, any one of those projects or all of those projects, Bill Gates, if you're listening, um, <laughs> just you can, you can do a special offering. You can let me know, um, or you can just put a little something extra in the tithe, a little gift, and we'll use it in that direction. But uh, we're enjoying God's provision, and whether we have those things or not, um, God is here. The worship was beautiful. Who thought worship was beautiful today? Gosh, it just... It just, it just spoke to my heart, and I'm so thankful that we are here. So let's get on with the message. Again, welcome all you guys who are here. If you're new and this is your first time, um, typically there's a lot of scripture. I go through a lot of scripture. The style that we teach is expository, which means generally I go um, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, sometimes even, even line by line, and we break it apart so that we can get to the kind of deeper meaning sometimes of what God has uh, in scripture. And so there's going to be a lot of scripture. Grab your Bible. It's a great place to bring your Bible. Now, this happens to be a little bit of a shorter section, um, but it's so significant that I wanted to just take this small section and teach a whole thing on it. So um, <clears throat> before I get started, <clears throat> how many of you know and trust that God has a plan for your life? Okay. Most of us, I think. How many of us know of the scripture and believe the scripture that says before you were even born, he had a plan for you in your life? Okay, same thing. I think most of us probably believe that. Now, with that stuff in mind, 
How many of you look at where your life is, where your career path is, the things that, wherever you are right now, and you have a hard time reconciling that with this idea that God's got some grand purpose for you? Okay? Often, often. And that is something that I think a lot of us struggle with. How does what I'm doing right now in my life, how does that fit into God's grand plan? And sometimes you think, Maybe his grand plan was 15 years ago, and that was it. And it just kind of fizzled, and now I'm just waiting for the end. That is not what God's plan is for you. Just because you don't know God's plan for you and what the direction is right now and how what you're doing fits into that absolutely does not mean that there isn't one. And when we look at the section of Scripture that we're going to teach through today, I want you to just kind of have that in mind. We're going to talk about, it, it's commonly just called the burial of Jesus, okay? So if you, have, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in Mark 15, verses 42 to 47. It's not a lot of verses, but there's some really important stuff. So catch you guys up for those of you who maybe haven't been here in a while or it's your first time. We're in the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, our, our series is called Jesus the Servant Messiah, and it's because the Gospel of Mark emphasizes more than any of the other Gospels just what, a, what an incredible servant heart that Jesus had. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit in, in all believers that we can do, as Jesus says, you'll do greater things than I did. We get to see in the Gospel of Mark, he travels around the Galilee and he's performing miracles and he's driving out demons and he's healing and he's doing all these things and empowering the disciples to do those things too. And through that Holy Spirit, we have that same power. So seeing these things, it's not just like, hey, that's a really cool story. We can say, Jesus himself said, we're going to do greater things than that. So if you're sitting here in your life and you're going, well, I haven't done greater things than any of those things that we saw Jesus do, it's not over. It's not over in your life until he takes you home. So let's talk about it. Where we were last week, Jesus had been crucified on the cross at Golgotha, okay? Many of us know it as Calvary, but it's the same, same thing. And even in the middle of his pain, even in the middle of this horrific crucifixion, Jesus is offering mercy to those around him. He offers it to, to one of the uh, thieves that's on the cross next to him. He offers it to even the Roman guards. He offers a little bit to Pilate. He's got so much mercy in his heart. And, and in the middle of his trial, his trial, what he's going through, has nothing to do with whether he offers mercy to those around him. He always does that. It's who he was. And we talked about how the cross of Jesus, the, the crucifixion cross, is both a shadow of the mercy seat and of the judgment seat. And how we shouldn't look at our... At our our experience to come at the judgment seat of Christ as him judging our sins, but rather as rewarding us for the way that we have lived our life and what we have done with the gifts and the opportunities that he has given us. Um, yeah, I just, I like to think of it, and I'll repeat it again. I said it last week, but I just like to think that when you get to that place where it's always, you're standing in front of the pearly gates, and St. Peter's reading your list of, of things that you did in your life. Not necessarily biblical, but I think, 
I think the idea there is going to be that it's not going to read as accusations against you. It's going to read as the crimes that you have been pardoned of through Jesus. And we have that freedom. So that's where we were. And ending up there, Jesus on the cross from a distance, watching from a hillside not very far away, a group of women watched in horror as the Christ gave up his life. This Jesus that they had been following around the Galilee. The last scripture from last week, I'll just read this one to you. Mark 15, 40, 41, so that we're all kind of on the same starting point. Now there were also some women watching from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less, and Joseph, which is Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and serve him. And there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. It's interesting that Mark makes a point of talking about them and saying many other women. So there are many other disciples who were females that followed him around. In that culture, it was very uncommon to even acknowledge the women, much less immortalize them in Scripture and say they were following him around. They were, they were disciples of Jesus. So this week, all right, let's get into Scripture for this week. We're in verse 42 of Mark 15. We've got it on the screen here. When evening had already come, since it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. I love how Mark always, he'll, he'll uh, translate those things. That is, preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. But there's even more to it than that. Christians would call that day Good Friday. That's what, that's what we call it. It's right before Easter. It's called the day of preparation, and the day of preparation is a significant day in that culture at that time. They were preparing the meals for the following day since it was a Sabbath, and on the Sabbath, you're not allowed to work. So anything that had to be done, and and this is preparing the meals, but it was anything that you had to do, you had to do it before the Sabbath because you weren't allowed to work on the Sabbath. It was Mosaic law that said that. In fact, I'll read it for you. Exodus 20, 8 to 11. It says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You, your son, your daughter, your male slave, your female slave, your cattle. How do you keep your cattle from doing work? Or your resident who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and everything that's in them, and he rested on the seventh day. For that reason, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, a little bit later in Exodus, Exodus chapter 35, verses 2 and 3, says, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a holy day. Just a reminder, a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. Seems harsh. You shall not kindle a fire in any of your dwellings on the Sabbath day. So that's where they take that that not only do you not work, but you you won't start a fire, you won't cook food, you won't do anything. In Israel to this day, you get on an elevator on the Sabbath and it's pre-programmed. You don't touch any buttons because that's work. It just goes floor by floor by floor all the way to the top. If you're in a high rise on the Sabbath, you better have some time. And then it comes down, floor by floor by floor, so you don't have to touch the buttons. They take it to that, to that extreme, but that's the letter of the law. 
So where we find ourselves here on the preparation day is with this conundrum now. They've got bodies up on the cross. There's three, three crucifixions that are going on, not just Jesus. And typically, they would leave the bodies of the crucified on the cross. They would leave them there for the birds to pick at them, insects to get there, and they would just leave them up there. Just adds extra humiliation to the process of what's going on. But this one, the Sabbath is approaching, and they can't leave the bodies up there. Now, this is the, the Jews, okay? Pilate couldn't care less whether they take the bodies down off the Sabbath or work on the Sabbath. Pilate doesn't care about any of that, but the Jews do, and the Sanhedrin does. And we already know that the Sanhedrin is more than willing to be a thorn in Pilate's side and irritate him just enough to get what they want. So he's going to let this happen. Let's look at it. Mark 15, 43, Joseph of Arimathea, remember that name, came, a prominent member of the council who was himself also waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. There's so much to unpack there. Let's talk about it really quick. Number one, Pilate would not have at all been happy to see a member of the Sanhedrin it says council, that's the Sanhedrin. The very Sanhedrin that just hours before was in front of Pilate pleading for them to crucify Jesus and being a, an irritant. Remember, they even made Pilate come outside. Oh, we are too holy to go inside. You have to come outside so that we don't defile ourselves by going into the praetorium. So he would have been really irritated, like, what now? Like, I've already given you what you want. Why are you in front of me again? So I would have taken some courage for Joseph to go back in there. Also, the council, the Sanhedrin, would have been pretty upset had they seen Joseph go back in there. Like, what is, what is he doing here? Now, let's talk about it. Let's talk about who Joseph of Arimathea is because it's important. I think it's key to what we're talking about in this section of Scripture here. Now, there is so much going on in this passage that we could teach for a month about all the different aspects of what's going on, and there's great teaching out there. This is what the Lord highlighted to me. Zeroed me right in on Joseph of Arimathea. All four Gospels mention him. And again, I always teach you, remember, when all four Gospels mention a name or a specific event, look at it. It's important. So here we are, Joseph of Arimathea. He's from a city in Judea. It's about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. Now, let me show you a map. This, is a, this map even would have been ancient in the time of Jesus. This is, and you can't see it very well, so I apologize. This is a map of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, after the Exodus, when they got into the promised land, the, the land was divided up into tribal regions. And you can see Asher, uh, Manasseh, Ephraim, Gad, Reuben, Simeon, Judah, Dan, all these right here. The area that he's from is right in here. It's right in between, kind of below, it's actually in Ephraim, but sort of between Dan and Benjamin. It's kind of right in here. Bethlehem is right here. Jerusalem's right here, just so you get a little context of where we're at. Now, it's important to know a couple things about this area. First of all, Samuel the prophet was born there too, so it's kind of a cool little place. It's in the territory of the tribe of Ephraim, but it was in a city, a specific city, allotted to the Levites. Anybody know where the land, the section of land allotted to the tribe of Levites is? Where is it located on this map? In 
in all of them. The Levites were not given their own territory. They were given specific cities in everyone else's territories. Okay, so they didn't have their own specific territory. So this right here, it's in a city in that area I showed you that was allotted for the Levites. It was originally called, at, the, at this time, it was Ramathame Zophim. That's what it was called at the beginning. You don't need to know that. Uh, you can read Joshua 21 if you want a little bit more on that story. Read that. But the Levites weren't given their own territory. We look at Numbers, Numbers 18.23. It says, only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting. This is laying out what the Levites, what their job is. It was a very important job that they had was to take care of the tent of meeting. And they shall bear their own guilt. It shall be a permanent statute throughout your generations. And among the sons of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. Okay, so if you're in the tribe of Levi... And you're sitting there going, okay, wait, we've been given this special task to take care of the temple and to collect the offerings and to, to do all these things. And our reward is we get no inheritance. That doesn't sound like a good deal, does it? Till we jump ahead a little bit to a whole nother book, we look at Joshua, Joshua 13, 33. It says, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses did not give an inheritance. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he had promised to them. The Lord God is their inheritance, meaning that wherever he is, wherever they are, that's their inheritance. They don't need a piece of land for that. So Joseph of Arimathea also was a member of the Sanhedrin. It says council, that's what they're talking about. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. He was present that very morning when they were trying Jesus. When they snatched him out from the, from the Garden of Gethsemane, when they brought him in before the high priest and Caiaphas, and they started trying him, and then they took him over to Pilate. Joseph of Arimathea was a part of that mob, if you will, that took him over there. Scripture says he was waiting for the kingdom of God. Now, I think if you talk to all of the Sanhedrin members at that time, are you waiting for the kingdom of God? They would have said, yes, of course we are. This is different. This is different. Joseph is different. He's not waiting for the same kingdom of God that they were. In fact, I think he knows that the kingdom of God has come at this point. John 19.38 says that Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but a secret one for fear of the Jews. So he was a disciple of Jesus. He knew Jesus. He would probably heard of all the miracles may have even met him by this point, and he was a disciple of Jesus, but he had to be quiet. He couldn't say anything. When it says the Jews, he's talking specifically about the Sanhedrin, of which he's a member. I can't speak up, and I can't say what I believe without getting myself in trouble. Matthew 27 says he's a wealthy man, so he's wealthy, he's important, he's prominent, he's all these things. If you think about his wealth and then go back to what Jesus taught about how hard it is for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God. Anybody remember that? Matthew 19, 24, Jesus said, Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's because he had status. He had money. He had, he had this position. He had grown up in that. He had all these things to lose. 
If he aligned himself publicly with Jesus, it was a risk. And we're going to see he's going to take a risk here in just a minute. Matthew 27 calls him a wealthy man. So again, wealth, status, all those things. British legend now, there's, there's so many things, we call them apocryphal sources, that come from the outside of Scripture. Some of them are history books, they're historical accounts. Some of them are legends. Um, some of them, they're not really sure if it's kind of part legend and part history. We don't really know in a lot of cases, but in a lot of cases, it can be useful to fill in some gaps, okay? As long as it's not a complete fairy tale, it can fill in some gaps, so there's a book out there that is, Kayla, get your pen ready. Um, it's called The History of That Holy Disciple, Joseph of Arimathea. Okay, now it was discovered in 1770. They don't know who the author is. Many people think it is Joseph of Arimathea or somebody who is very, very close to him, but they discovered it in 1770. But it says this. It says that Joseph of Arimathea, he himself first preached the gospel at Glastonbury in Somersetshire, where there's still growing a noted white thorn bush that blooms every Christmas day. Some of that may be, may be legend, but it tells us other things. Joseph of Arimathea is very much associated with the legend of the Holy Grail. Anybody heard of that? Anybody seen the Monty Python version? Throw that out. It's not biblical. It's not accurate. But you know what I'm talking about. The legend... The legend of the Holy Grail is that Joseph of Arimathea, when he was removing Jesus from the cross, also had one of the chalices that was present at the Last Supper that they drank wine out of. And as he was taking Jesus off the cross, some of Jesus' blood dripped into the chalice. And then Joseph packaged that chalice up with some of Jesus' blood inside and then kept it with him. And there's the legend of the Holy Grail is that they're searching for that chalice. Now, again, that's legend, that's story. We don't know about it, but it does fill in some other things that Joseph, after this time where he brought Jesus down off the cross, um, lived a solitary life. He was ostracized from the Sanhedrin, basically just lived a life kind of as a monk, um, because he was such an outcast. He eventually ended up being arrested by the Romans and sent back by ship to Rome. Somewhere along the way, that ship was caught in a giant storm and that ship sank. Joseph of Arimathea, as we know him, had to swim to shore um, and, he, and eventually escaped, escaped that fate anyway. It also tells us that he was eight years older than Jesus. Okay, so at the time of what we're talking about now, that would have made him, anybody good at math? 41? Would have made him 41. And he had been a Pharisee since age 17. Okay, so again, if we do the math, what is that, 25-ish, 26 years? Anybody? That he was a Pharisee. 24 years. I told you, I'm a pastor because there's no math, typically. All right. So that's who he is. John's gospel, by the way, tells us an interesting fact. You know, we pull accounts in from other gospels to kind of paint a little bit of a bigger picture of what's going on. John's gospel tells us that Joseph was not alone. Anybody know who was with him? Some of you are like, 
he was, was not alone. John 19, 39, Nicodemus, who had first come with him at, by night, come to him by night, also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 liters weight. Nicodemus was also a Pharisee. So Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea obviously knew each other. And they had probably talked about this. Nicodemus may have been the one that even introduced Jesus to Joseph. We don't know that for sure, but they both came together. When we look at 100 liters weight, that's about 65 pounds or so. And he came, Nicodemus came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 65 pounds. That's a lot of money's worth. That's an investment. And he came along was Joseph of Arimathea. Now, Mark 15, 44. Now, Pilate wondered. So now, he, at least Joseph, we don't know if Nicodemus was standing there with him or not, but he's standing in front of Pilate asking for the body to be released. Pilate now is wondering about this. Mark 15, 44. Now, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him, as to whether he was already dead. It's the same centurion we talked about in previous weeks, the one that was right there at the crucifixion. And the reason Pilate's wondering about this is because the crucified would last typically like at a minimum six to eight hours, but sometimes it'd be days. It'd be two, three days where they would be alive on the cross. This is only a matter of hours. Remember, it was just only earlier that day that he was snatched from the Garden of Gethsemane, brought in, tried, tried, and crucified. All that all happened in the same day. So Pilate here is saying like, well, is he even dead yet? So we see in John 19, 31, 33, again, another one of those things that, that fills in some blanks here. Now then, since it was a day of preparation to prepare the, prepare the bodies, let me start over. It sounded like that auctioneer that Pastor Gabe was talking about. Now then, since it was the day of preparation to prevent the bodies from remaining on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews requested that of Pilate that their legs be broken and the bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him, the two thieves on either side. But after they came to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Okay. The centurion reports back all that we know about piercing his side and these sorts of things. To, to Pilate. And then verse 45, after learning this from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now, if Pilate thought that Joseph of Arimathea was a disciple of Jesus, would he have released the body to Jesus? No. The last thing Pilate wanted was more trouble, more controversy, more theories about what happened. If he released the body of Jesus to a disciple and Jesus wasn't dead yet, they could take him away, care for him, and he could reappear. If he was dead, they could take him and the body could, could disappear entirely. There's too many things that could happen. And from Pilate's standpoint, he's just like, I just want this whole thing to go away. I don't want to deal with this anymore. So knowing that Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin, the same one that was calling out and almost starting a riot to have Jesus crucified, this was a safe bet. Yeah, you can take him. It eliminates a couple problems for me. Take his body. I don't know what you want to do with it, but take it. 
Normally, the bodies of those crucified would not have been handled in any sort of ceremonial way. Okay? They would have been taken. They would have been thrown in a cave in a hole that they dug and a rock rolled over the end of it. That would be the end of it. The destiny of Jesus was supposed to be to be tossed in that cave or that pit with the other criminals, not in his own. Mark 15, 46, Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in a tomb which had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. So much teaching that we could talk about that aspect of the tomb. Matthew 27 tells us specifically that tomb belonged to Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. It also fulfills prophecy from Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 9. And his grave was assigned with wicked men. Remember, that was supposed to be his fate, to take all these crucified criminals and throw them in a pit. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. That moment of Joseph taking the body down with such care, such care and such reverence for the Messiah, who he knew was the Messiah, and preparing it with all these 65 pounds worth of spices to prepare the body. Now, there's two reasons that you do spices. In this case, they put the spices on the cloth, and they wrap the linen, they wrap the body in the linen. That's, they don't embalm, but that's basically to, to protect the body and so that it doesn't smell bad, to be honest with you. That's what they're doing. Now, later, we'll see the women bringing myrrh and different things so that they can anoint the body. Okay, that's what you do for the burial of a king. This, they're just trying to practically bury the body is what's happening here. There's a painting I want to show you. This is a painting, a famous painting. It's from 1435. It's by a Flemish artist. His name is Rogier van der Weyden. It's called Descent from the Cross. And it just, you can't see it well enough there to capture the emotion. But if you want to Google it at some time, if you're out there, look at it. Descent from the Cross by van der Weyden. It just captures the emotion of the moment. Joseph of Arimathea taking Jesus' body down and all the care that they took when they did this. So I just want to show you that because sometimes, again, visually, it helps me to to understand, to learn things. Mark 15, 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were watching to see where he was laid. So one slight inaccuracy in that is that Scripture tells us that they weren't right there, that they were still kind of off to the side sort of witnessing what was going on. We're going to talk more about that, or Pastor Gabe is going to teach next week. She's going to talk more about that. So let's get into... Let's make this all make sense. Does it all make sense to anybody? Okay, good. Let's make it make more sense. Joseph didn't have the power to stop what was happening. Okay? In the morning, when he was with the Sanhedrin, and he didn't agree with what they were doing. They were doing it, but he didn't have the power to stop it. He did have the power to honor Jesus by giving him a proper burial and doing what he could. But even at that point, he was risking his life and his reputation. There's no way what he did was not going to get back to the Sanhedrin. There's no way that that could be kept a secret, nor did he intend for it to be. 
Why do you think he would risk his life and his reputation for this? Because there are so many of the Sanhedrin members who wouldn't risk their life and their reputation, even if they believed. But he did. Why do you think? Anybody have an idea? Rhetorical question. I'm going to move on. It lies in his name. Not Joseph. Joseph of Arimathea. All four Gospels say that, specifically, that that's where he's from. That tells us a lot about what we need to know, about what's going on right here. Joseph was born in Levite territory. He was born in that town. Later became known as Arimathea, whereas if you look at the tribal map, there's a whole region of of, uh, Arimathea, but this is the town specifically. He was born in Levite territory, descended from Levites. What was the job of the Levite priests? I see some light bulbs going off. The job of the Levite priest primarily was to take care of the temple. To take care of the temple. Nehemiah 12, 44. On that day, men were also appointed. These are the Levites. Appointed over the chambers for the supplies, the contributions, the first fruits, the first fruits and the tithes to gather them from the fields of the cities, the portions required by the law for the priests and Levites. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who served. It was an honorable position. Okay? Now, he was a a member of the Sanhedrin, which means he was a Pharisee. He wasn't a Levite priest, but he was descended from Levites. He grew up in a city set aside for the Levites. Remember that. Joseph took care of Jesus as he was prepared to be raised on the third day. John 2, 19 to 21, Jesus answered them. Remember this? This is from previous teaching. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple and yet you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. His body, that temple of his body going to be raised up in three days. Who should take care of the temple so that it was ready to be raised up in three days? But somebody from the lineage of the Levite priesthood, Joseph of Arimathea. This was no accident. This was God's sovereign plan from the beginning. Joseph became a Pharisee, was a Pharisee for 24 years but he couldn't escape the destiny God had for him. That's who God said he was. Do you think at any point while all that time, Joseph of Arimathea was not just a a mole, an undercover Pharisee. He was serious about it. He was prominent. He was rich. He may have even been one of those who profited off of selling doves in the temple courtyard, the very one that Jesus went in and kicked over the tables. He was not a part-time anything. He was serious about that. But when he met Jesus, he knew. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23 says, But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. What were the Levites supposed to take care of? The first fruits. Verse 21, For since by a man death came, And by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so as in Christ 
all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Jesus Christ is the first fruits. The Levites were tasked by God to take care of the first fruits, to take care of the temple. Do you think Joseph of Arimathea thought that his life was going to turn out like this? Do you think he would have said, this is his destiny? And all those 25 years when he was being a Pharisee, Pharisees, world-renowned buttheads, right? That's right, I said that in church. Do you think that he thought, what I'm doing right now, my identity as a Pharisee, as a member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, Scripture tells us, that he would have thought, when the Messiah comes, my job is going to be to take care of his body, to prepare his body to be raised again on the third day. I don't think he ever could have seen that. So we, who are destined in Christ, who had a purpose for our life from before we were ever born, God's sovereign plan, his purpose for your life is not dependent on what you're doing for a living right now or what you did for a living or what you're going to do or whether you're at the beginning of your journey or nearing the end of your journey. It doesn't matter because God has a plan and we can't look at where we are today and go, oh, this is the plan. This is who I am and this is what I do. Your identity in Christ is dependent on God's sovereign plan. And Joseph of Arimathea knew. He took, his life took an entirely different path. He could have, being descended from Levites, said, I'm going to follow that calling. I'm going to take care of the temple. I'm going to do that calling. But instead, he went into the sect of the Pharisees and took a different path. But God's will for his life was impossible to escape. God knew from the beginning that there's only one man in this whole story that we just learned about who could have gone and taken Jesus' body. No one else could have done that. He was prominent. He was a Pharisee, a member of the Sanhedrin. So Pilate would have said, sure, I trust you. You're the ones who wanted him killed. I trust you. You've got every reason to want Jesus to just disappear quietly. I trust you. So he was in a place where Pilate could say, I'll release the body. He was rich, which means he could afford, and probably not many people could, an actual grave, a tomb there in Jerusalem. Remember, he's from a town a long way away. Tradition would have been your tomb was a family tomb, and it was where your family lived. He had enough money to be able to buy one right there, to own one right there in Jerusalem. He had the authority. He had the means he had everything he needed, and he knew who Jesus was. He had studied the scriptures like every other Pharisee, except that he saw in them Jesus as the fulfillment. The other ones didn't see that. The path you take is yours, but the Lord alone knows how that's going to be used. Proverbs 16.9 says, The mind of a person plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. You can plan all you want. The Lord knows where you're going. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That plan, that sovereign plan that God has had since before you were born is not dependent 
on where you are right now and whether you're satisfied and you see that as the end or whether you think there's got to be something else to my life. This teaches us that there is something. Until God says your plan, your purpose in life right now on earth is fulfilled, I'm calling you home. Until that day, think of yourself like Joseph. When the time comes that you are needed, what you, who you are, your experiences, your position in life, your station, everything about you will line up to the point where God says, I brought you here just like this for this reason. And then and only then will your, will your life be fulfilled, your purpose in God. We have that promise. I think when we read scripture like this, it helps me to understand that nothing in your life goes to waste. No skill you've learned, no job you've had, no place that you are, nothing goes to waste if you are a follower in Jesus because he's got a plan and we will never know the plans that he has for us, but we know they are plans for good. And it's a plan, by the way, that only you can fulfill. There's no one else could have done what Joseph did. There's no one else who can fill your role in the kingdom of God. That's why it's so important that we understand that and we walk in that. And we walk around in our lives looking for those things that God is calling us to do and not shrink back. If Joseph said, my station in life is too important, I'm not going to risk it, what would have happened? God raised up somebody else? We don't know. Thankfully, we don't have to find out because Joseph said, this is the Messiah and I will risk everything to do what God is calling me to do right now. And he recognized it. Will we recognize it when the time comes? That's why we're here, to learn about Scripture so that we recognize those things and we're ready when the time comes. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much, Lord God, that you are sovereign and that everything that comes our way, everything in life is ordained by you ahead of time. And we're not left on our own to figure out what that is. You have placed your spirit in us so that we can know. We can know whether we should go to the right or to the left. We can know the path for our life. We will never know the destination. But the spirit will guide us on the path. So, Lord, I just pray that all of us here, that you give us an awareness as we go out through our lives that there is nothing that we do. Every mundane trip to the grocery store, every Monday that we go into work, whether we like our job or not, you have something for us and you are preparing us for exactly what you have for our lives. So let us not see anything as a waste, anything as, as outside of your sovereign plan, but God, let us be aware that as we walk through every day that we have, God, we are a part of your plan and you have something that only we can do. Lord, let us not shrink back from that. Let us not be shy or embarrassed or pass the opportunity when it presents. Let us be bold, share the love of Jesus and fulfill the plan that you have for our lives. Lord, we thank you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to take communion right now. If you're new here, um, we take communion every time we gather together because Jesus said to. This is what we do. And we do it with full awareness that 
as a follower of Jesus Christ, what he did on the cross, the very things that we're learning about right now is what enabled us to sit here and be able to say, I can hear from the Holy Spirit. I am reconciled before God. So I don't have to be ashamed of anything. I don't have to sit back and say someone else can do it because I'm too broken to do what God has for me. It's through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross that we can say, yes, I know God has a plan and I know the Holy Spirit will lead me there if I just ask. That's, that's a gift. And so when we take communion, this is what we're celebrating. The way that we do it here, over on this side, we'll have uh, wine and bread and gluten-free crackers and we just dip in and take it that way. We'll have a second station over here and I completely forgot to have somebody do this side. Um, a couple, couple from the church, who wants to serve communion on this side? How about these two right here? Wearing his Bronco orange shirt, going, going, come on, the kickoff happened 10 minutes ago. Okay, we're on the home stretch, guys, I promise. Thank you, guys. We also have self-serve over here, by the way. Self-serve is juice for those of you who don't want wine. You can serve yourself or serve your family. We'll just come to the middle and come down the sides. Let's be thankful. Let's just think about this message today and go, no matter where I think my life is, whether the, the best parts of my life are gone or whether they're still to come, God's got a plan for you. Joseph didn't know his plan until it presented itself and he was bold enough to step into it. Through the Holy Spirit, we can do that too. Thank you, guys.